For a second there, when Rick was praying, I thought he said Mark is a young man who gave himself, and that's uh, no longer true. It's not just the age, it's the mileage. But uh, they, they both accumulate, and, uh, and we're glad they do. Um, but my wife, Angie, and I have been here in, in Beijing about uh, almost six years now. Um, we have uh, two children still living at home, though one, like the Fosters, not much longer. Uh, we're sending our third, uh, Emily, off to college this year, and um, and will be just us and Susanna next year, which is going to be a, a whole other reinventing of our family, as it has been with each of our others. Our our oldest son Ben is uh, is finishing up in in college. Our our oldest daughter Jessica is has married a a godly and adventurous young man that she met here in uh, China, and uh, they are are living in Beijing along with our grand puppy Minnie. A little poodle dog that uh, that's our only only grand anything at this point, but uh, um, but we're glad they're here. You know, even on the way to, to to church today, as with the craziness that's going on in the auto show, and we live just over at Capital Paradise, Ming Duyuan, across the river, and so we're right in the thick of it, and uh, people trying to park everywhere they can, and and uh, just trying to take a turn onto the road, and someone does this. This move where as you're waiting for cars to come, they decide, well, I'll just get inside you and then I'll take my way. And my wife made the comment, said, it's just, it's the short-sightedness of the driving. It's, it's the, and, and that's, it manifests itself in China because we have so many new drivers here. It manifests itself in every culture in the world. And I find that it manifests itself in my life every day. I'm short-sighted. I look at things in this world as though they have eternal quality, and they don't. There is nothing in this world that is worth being as it is today in the next. Only those things which God has made for eternity in us will survive into the next world because nothing else deserves to be there. The greatest moment we experience in this life cannot compare to our first moment in the presence of the Lord in eternity. And so it starts to set us back in our perspective. A couple of years ago, a um, little more than two, and in the job I was working in here, we were in a very good place. Things had built up over several years of building a, a school, and, and we felt like God was really working in that. Some new things had happened. It was growing uh, new initiatives in place, and everything was very exciting. We were um, we went home. We closed the previous year with no problems, or so we thought, and uh, really uh, relaxed a little. And that all changed over the summer, and it became a situation that embroiled us in a big mess. Still, we're doing the work of the Lord. But there were so many attacks and things that resulted in that, that situation falling apart in stages throughout the year. And it was a time of great suffering. And I remember at the beginning of that new school year when suddenly we didn't even know if we're going to be able to start school again. Thinking, this is like those stories in the Bible. Where they're faced with a great crisis. And God comes through. But the problem is, we're only at the beginning of the story. And not all those stories in the same way. How do we face the situation when the trouble's in your face and you don't know the outcome? Where do we place our faith? Because, you know, faith, it says in Hebrews, is the, the presence 
are the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. It is, it is the things that we are the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is those things which we cannot see but we know to be true. Those are the most vital things we can hold on to in life. And faith does not just exist. I don't just have faith. I don't get a gallon of faith today. Faith always has an object. Faith must be placed in something. If I sit in one of these chairs over there, I'm placing faith in several different things. My knowledge, well, I'm I'm first, I have faith that the law of gravity says I better get a firm structure to sit on before I sit down there. Because otherwise, that's one of those laws you can't break. It will always apply, and it will take me to the ground faster than anything. But I'm putting my faith in the manufacture of that chair. I'm putting my faith in that object and that it will hold me. So who or what must be the object of our faith? There was a man named Horatio Spafford in the 1860s in Chicago. He was a very prominent lawyer. In 1861, he married a a young lady named Anna Larson. And uh, they were, were very prominent in Chicago society. He was a very successful lawyer. He had, um, they had uh, five children over that decade uh, together, uh, four girls and a boy. And he was a, they were also close personal friends of the evangelist Dwight L. Moody. And so in Christian circles, in their church, and all the things they were, they were very influential people of God in that community. He was very successful in his investments. Things started to change in his circumstances in 1870. Their, their son, who was age four at the time, died of scarlet fever. The very next year in 1871, the Great Fire of Chicago broke out, and it destroyed most of the sizable investments that they had established. In 1873, in the wake of these tragedies and these, these times of suffering, They decided to take a holiday to Europe, and they decided to visit England because uh, Dwight L. Moody would be going there on a series of evangelistic uh, meetings, and so they thought, if we go take a holiday in England, and then we can, we can, um, afterwards, we can have, uh, uh, we can attend one of his meetings and see him there. And so, because Horatio had uh, work to do, he went ahead and sent Anna and their girls. Annie was 11, Margaret was 9, Bessie was 5, and Tanetta, their littlest, was 2 at the time. And he put them on a ship called the Ville de Havre. And they made the trek from New York across to England ahead of him. But on the way, on November 22nd, the Ville de Havre was struck by an iron ship, an iron sailing ship. And it sank. 226 people died. And among those 226... All four of the Spafford's daughters drowned. Anna made it safely to England. She sent back a two-word telegram to her husband. It said, saved alone. And so as Horatio Spafford got on the ship to follow his family over, and he was going across the very place where the ship had gone down, The Lord was working in his heart. And you know, when we look at these times, just as we look at Bible stories, so many times the Bible does not tell us the emotions. Sometimes it does. The anger, 
the response, the bitterness, the crying out to God. Let me ask you this. If I did something wrong to you, and you were very angry with me, and yet, when we were together, you only treated me with kindness, are you loving me? You may feel deep, intense emotions about what I've done in your heart. But in the way that you behave towards me, you show nothing but kindness. That's love. And we can love God and still go, God, why on earth have you allowed this to happen to me? I do not understand. My vision is not far enough to see what you have to accomplish. I think all those things were going on in Horatio Spafford as he he crossed. But as he looked out on the waves, the Lord inspired him to write these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. And on that ocean voyage, he wrote, it is well with my soul. One of the mightiest, most inspiring hymns of faith. Because it was faith. His faith was in the person of God, not in the outcome he faced That's not the end of the story. None of these things, even that we read in Scripture, should we consider as the end of their stories, or else we would be tempted to look at someone like David and go, look at how he defeated that giant. But we've got to marry it to the idea that he also committed adultery and deception and murder. He was a man of great faith, and yet we read in the Psalms how much he struggled with depression. These are our whole stories that God is involved in. From first to last. C.S. Lewis says, God knows us intimately. And one day in his presence, we will know ourselves. We don't know ourselves like God knows us today. The Spaffords, he joined his wife in England. They had three more children and another son and two daughters. And that son also died at age four of fever. The two daughters survived. The hardest thing I think that they suffered was that the members of their church saw this as a divine punishment. And so they left their church. They formed another group and they went and formed what was called the American Colony in Jerusalem and what was then called Palestine. And for the rest of their lives, they served in this colony, which was a, they would do charity work for people of all faiths. They were respected by Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike. Uh, the colony was still in existence at the time of World War I when Palestine underwent great suffering and deprivation, and they provided soup kitchens and other things. That is responding to God in faith because it's not the outcome of life, but the Lord of life is the object of our faith. I want to turn us today to a passage of Scripture in Daniel's, Daniel chapters 1 through 3. We're going to focus. This is one of the stories that came to mind for me when we were going through this. Uh, the thing I liked about the Bible stories was that I know how they turn out. And it's so easy in hindsight to go, oh, they just didn't know. God was going to do something great. And in our own story, now looking back, God did great things. God took us through suffering. God put us through times that... We made different decisions. We had to live with those different decisions. 
we still feel the ramifications of those decisions and we'll experience those for the rest of our lives. That's just part of being alive. You may be facing those types of decisions today. We had a, in um, one of my teaching friends, an economics class, he's confronting the students with uh, ethical challenges. And the challenge that my daughter, Emily, who's a senior, had was if you had all your stock invested in a company and you overheard someone who worked for that company saying, I think the company's going under next week. You've just been privileged to insider information. What would you do? Would you sell? And then they had, a, they had a, not only a conversation in their class, but it spilled over into the ethics and life applications class that she was also in because she raised a question. And they came and, and they, they, as they discussed it, they said, well, most of them said, I would still go ahead and sell because my family's welfare is depending on that. One student actually said, I would pray for forgiveness, then sell. <laughs> and that is a great, honest response. Because what do we do? We say, I have no choice, but in this matter, now what am I doing? I'm passing the suffering on to someone else. But I have no choice in this matter. If I don't do this, then this will happen to my family. If I don't do this, I'll lose this job opportunity. If I don't do this, But is that outcome to be the object of our dependence and our faith? So I want to talk to you about four young men. Really, I'm going to concentrate on three. Their names are Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Azariah. Though we know them better by the Babylonian names they were given of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And their friend Daniel, who was also called Belshazzar. And as we pull up... um, Scriptures, I think I've got someone there. Just to, to give you their story, because again, there's a whole story. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And what did God do? The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. God took his own people and his own stuff and gave them to Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked, evil, pagan king. Now, if you know the history of of Judah before this time, they had been through, very recently, two very good kings. One was Hezekiah. The other was King Josiah. In fact, the young men mentioned this story. Their names probably reflect the impact of the righteous reign of King Josiah. Because Josiah, what he did, he was one king who was faithful to remove all idolatry from the land. He tore down the high places. He even dug up the bones that were in the area and burnt them on the altar so they would be desecrated for any religion. He was extreme. They were cults of male prostitutes being held in the temple. He cleared all those things out. And it came about when they were clearing some areas in the temple and they found the book of the law. And he he had them read the law to the people And he tore his robes and he wept before God and he took seriously the word of the Lord. And yet God said something very strange. He said, all this is not enough to turn back the judgment I'm bringing on you because of your great-great-grandfather Manasseh and his great wickedness. I've already pronounced a judgment. Now we know in God's judgments, something about God's judgments, there are always blessings. In fact, any time that God brings judgment 
before ultimate judgment in eternity is an act of His mercy and grace. Anytime He gives us a chance to repent before we stand before Him in eternity is an act of mercy and grace. In this case, God and His sovereignty allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come. And at this point, He didn't carry off the king, but He did take hostages, as was common in those days, and He carried off some young men. It says then that He ordered Ashpenaz, chief of His court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. He said, these were young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Let's just stop a moment to reflect on the great blessings of God to these young men. They were born into good, God-fearing families. You'll see by their names. They were born into the elite in Judah, a little kingdom that was now going to be pulled apart by other nations like ravenous wolves tearing a carcass. But it's, they were born to the best in society. They were good looking. They were fit. They were really, really smart. They would the, be the people any institution would be recruiting. And so the king said, I want you to find the best of the best that we can train to be leaders in our kingdom. They had been blessed, and yet here they are in God's sovereignty being ripped away from their families, from their kingdom, probably turned into eunuchs. It's its own kind of suffering. And then all these different things that were happening for them that suddenly their life has changed. How did they respond? Among them were... Oh, sorry, this is, there's the next part is among these were some... I skipped over something there. It was said the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be for trained for three years and then to enter the king's service. And then among them were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now there's no mistake in those names. Here's why. Daniel means the Lord is my judge. They gave him the name Belteshazzar, which means favored of Bel. Bel, also called Baal by some, is the same as Zeus or Jupiter in the Greek and Roman pantheons. He's the chief god. Daniel was given the prime name. They must have recognized then his talents. He is favored of Bel. So they took him from the Lord is my judge. They wanted to change even their thinking. They wanted to take their thinking off the God they have served and put them on the Babylonian gods. See any parallels to us? It is in our thinking where our focus is that we must be true to the God who is there and not the ones that aren't. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. They changed it to to Shadrach based on Shadrachu, the sun god, is the command of Aku. Again, reorienting him to a different God. Mishael, who is like God? Changed to Meshach, who is like Aku, the goddess of love, or Venus, Aphrodite. Azariah, the Lord is my help, became Abednego, servant of Nebo, the god of wisdom. So they're trying to change these young men. They're giving them new names. 
They're giving them a new responsibility. They're going to teach them all the language and literature of the Babylonians. They're going to feed them from the king's table. What a privilege. What a privilege. Again, we have to think these young men must have suffered. Let's not pretend that, oh, they were so godly they didn't suffer. Godly people suffer all the time. We must be honest about that fact. And we can still love God by asking Him, why on earth is this happening to me? But they, being faithful to Him, did not give up on what God had given them to do. And they believed in keeping a kosher diet to honor God. And so what they did is they asked if they could be given vegetables and water instead of the rich foods and the foods that had been sacrificed to idols and the other things that the king had. And the, and the chief steward was very nervous about this. He says, it's my head that will roll if you guys shrivel up and look puny because we haven't fed you good food. And so this is what Daniel said. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And here's where he puts his faith in what God chooses to do. He says, entreat your servants in accordance with what you see. He can't control his metabolism. He can't control anything about that. He just says, we'll do what we're responsible to do. And then you judge us according. He's putting all everything into God's hands. And in the end, what happens? It said, in the end of 10 days, they looked healthier, better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. To these four men, skipping to verse 17, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Notice it says God gave. Daniel didn't have an ability in himself to do it. God gave him that. He gave them intelligence. He gave them learning. And then he gave them the ability to use it. So they entered the king's service. And it says that when the king interviewed them in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which he questioned them, um, he talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Okay. In fact, in a later part, it says he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So they're put in exactly the place that God wanted them. Have you ever been someplace and felt like God has led you through a series of steps? You may have given up a lot of things. You may have given up what you had back home someplace else. You may have given up other opportunities. You may have come to this place by God's leadership and said, Lord, I'm here because you want me to. And suddenly you run into a wall of circumstance and it says, wait, I thought I was exactly where God wanted me to be. Why is this happening now? Well, suddenly they were under a threat of death. Not just them, every magician and enchanter. And I'm going to just run through this real quickly because it's still background to our main point. But the king had a dream and he forgot what it was. And so, and this is arrogant but also wise, he called his magicians and enchanters in and said, I want you to tell me what the dream is. Now, if he had told them what the dream and what it meant, if he just told them the dream, they could have made something up. But he said, if you really have these abilities you claim you have, I want you to tell me what my dream was, and then I want you to tell me what it meant, or I'm going to put you all to death. 
And that included Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And so Daniel asked, the chief steward said, only God can, in fact, even the, the magicians then said, only God can interpret dreams. You're asking something impossible. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. But Daniel said, why is the king issuing such a harsh decree? Would you ask him for time? And then he went to his friends, and he said this. He returned to the house and explained the manner to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I don't have anything to say to you this morning. In fact, I'm trying to keep a lot of this on Scripture because only the Word of God can be trusted. That which I say, I pray and submit and ask the Lord to work through me. But I don't have anything to give you that's worth anything. Unless the Lord can give something through me or can work in your heart directly in what He's saying and He's working, there's nothing to give to you. Daniel had nothing to give to the king. He didn't know what the dream was. It was only something the Lord could reveal. And this is what happens when our focus of faith is on the Lord. There are situations where only God can do something and God has to show up. Or he's going to be really embarrassed. And in this case, they're going to be really dead. And so he gives it over to his friends and he asks them, would you pray? And so I want you to see how their character is being built to trust in the Lord to provide in each situation regardless of the circumstances. And God does reveal it to Daniel. And just pointing out, he gives a, a prayer of praise. He then, when he says to the king, I'm just going to read you quickly, and these are not up there, but it just says that Daniel said to the king, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king this mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Then he repeats, he tells him about this great statue made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and iron mixed with clay. And it represents the kingdoms that are to come, begin with Nebuchadnezzar's. The gold may be, may be Babylon, and then perhaps the silver represents the Persian Empire that came afterwards. And then the bronze, the Greeks, and the iron, the Romans, and then the clay and mixed with iron, what became of the divided Roman kingdom. And there's a great stone that comes and smashes the whole statue to pieces and then grows into a mountain and fills the earth. And God establishes a kingdom that will never end. It's a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. And he says, at the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And he continues to say, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this. And what he did was he set Daniel in a, in a great position of authority to advise the king. And he also said, Daniel asked him, at his request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the royal court. So this sets up the crisis of faith for three, these three young men. Just in our sin natures, we respond badly to bad circumstances. We also respond badly to good circumstances. That's sin. And King Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps thinking of this image, decided to set up an image all of gold, a great image that stood on the plain, and he gathers all his royal officials together and says, 
Whenever you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, anybody play a mean zither? What is a zither? I don't know what that is. A zither, a lyre, a harp, pipe, all kinds of music. We're just going to summarize that by saying when the band plays. But when the, the band plays, you must all fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. What is he doing? He is saying to every official in his kingdom, you're not only going to revere my authority, you're going to worship me as God. And his heart motive is going to be revealed in this story. God revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar. If you want to see how Nebuchadnezzar himself comes to faith, I believe we'll be able to talk with him in eternity. Read chapter 4. It took him through a period of years of madness before he finally humbled himself before God. He keeps making decisions that God is God and then he forgets. And I would really blame him for that, but I do the same thing. Though I've trusted him most of my life, I still come into a situation and say, Lord, why has this not happened for me? When your loved ones are suffering, when you're suffering, when a dread disease has come back, when the outcome that you have given everything towards, you've sacrificed and, and, and obediently done everything for the Lord to come to that place, and then he's, it seems like it's being yanked away. Some say when God closes a door, he opens a window. But what if you're on the 20th floor? It's what it feels like sometimes. And so it feels like, Lord, you brought me here just to die? Like the Israelites facing the Red Sea. They've gone through all this trouble, finally a glimmer of light and hope. And why here? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are amongst all these officials. And the band plays... And all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And at this time, some astrologers, or Chaldeans, in my translation I just call them weasels, these guys had been saved because of what Daniel had done. But they're jealous of these young Jewish men who have been set up as administrators of the province of Babylon. And so they come and denounce the Jews and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You've issued a decree that whenever the band plays, everyone is to fall down and worship the statue. But these young men, these Jews you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons them. And he asked, is it true? But he gave them one more chance. He says, when you hear the band playing, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But look at what it says. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? You have a boss or a friend or someone else who wants to assume the position that's only God and says, you better obey me or else. The consequences for you will be severe. What God is able, that's the root of Nebuchadnezzar's problem, is that he wants not only to be the king of kings that God has made him, he wants to take the place of God himself. If our faith is based in an outcome, we've put something else in place of God. 
as a source of our faith. We have, we have bankrolled our future, our hope, everything else on this thing. If it doesn't turn out like this, Lord, how can I trust you? Now, the first response that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give to the king, and they're using their Babylonian names here because it's in the context of the king, is one that if we were just on a a power Christianity trip, if our dependence on God is if God shows up, if I trust in God, God will always make sure I'm provided for and I'm protected. If we have that kind of faith, then we can answer just like they answer at the beginning here. They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, The God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Power of Christianity, we're fine. We're right on track here. God will always come through. Somebody said when people sing the song, God is still on his throne. Some sing in a term of, oh, great. It worked out like I hoped. God is still on his throne. But that song is, God is still on his throne. That's for times of suffering. That's for times of every outcome going south and sideways. God is still on his throne no matter what the circumstance may be. And there's a lovely extra statement. And this is the core, I think. This is something that to me stands out unique in so many of these stories that says he is able. They trust the ability of God. They have no doubt. But then they say... But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The first part of their response expresses their faith in God's ability. The second part of their response expresses their submission to God's sovereignty and to the glory of his name. Nothing will compromise the glory of his name in their lives. That's our challenge. When I'm faced with this circumstance, if I don't sell this today, what will happen to my family? What is for the glory of the name of the Lord? This outcome is nothing that I expected. How will God be glorified as I submit myself to him? Even if he does not, we want you to know we will not worship. Now, the king is so angry that he has them stoke up the furnace even hotter, kind of to match his anger. And it's so, and they bind these guys in their clothing and they wrap ropes around them and they have their strongest men take them up there, which I guess they're probably pretty much having to carry them because they're all tied like this. And they go close enough where they could just hurl them into the furnace and the flames are so hot that the men who throw them in die from the heat. But the king goes, wait, those guys are walking around in there. And didn't we throw three men in there? And now I see someone that looks like the son of the gods walking in there with them. The presence of God with his people is right in the middle of the furnace. His presence has never left. Sometimes it takes the furnace to burn away everything else and reveal that he's been there all along. And so he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, Come out. Come here. And this is what's neat. All these other 
people around. They came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. There is a crowd of witnesses. And it says, they saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. That's the glory of God revealed in a way that would never have happened. Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And then in typical sinner fashion, he goes, Therefore I decree the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God could be saved in this way. So the guys who turned him in have got to be feeling pretty nervous right now. Nebuchadnezzar still has not had his full encounter, personal encounter with the living God. He's getting closer. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abed, we don't know the rest of their lives. We don't know if they got old and fat and sloppy. But we know the rest of their lives, just as they were before, they were completely loved and accepted by God as his own, his own sons. And that's where we are today. He has accepted each of us as, Jesus, as he accepted Jesus Christ. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When he looks at us, he looks at us. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. He said, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. In whom I am well pleased. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah continued to act in a way which honored God first. The Spaffords, amidst all the heartache and suffering, continued to turn their actions into things which honored God and showed his love to others. For the rest of their lives, even when they were betrayed by some of those closest to them in their own church body. You know, outcomes, anything is possible in this life. If you read Hebrews 11, the chapter of faith, it's really scary because it kind of falls on a knife edge. All those who have faith, about half of them triumph, kill giants, do those things. About half of them sawn in two, hanged, burned. But you know what? There is nothing, just as there's nothing good in this life that's worthy of the next. There is nothing evil in this life that will not be wiped away in one moment in eternity. It says in Revelation 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, I consider the present sufferings not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. C.S. Lewis dealt with a lot of pain in his own life but he said when we want something to be when we want to be something other than the thing God wants us to be we must be wanting what in fact will not make us happy when we want to be something other than what God wants us to be we're actually wanting something which will not make us happy it takes us away from his best for us as he says in Romans 8:28 he works in all things for the good or there's another way of reading it he works with those who love God to accomplish the good according to his purposes Shadrach Meshach and Abednego was not just their good it was the good of their nation that God had put them in and the good of the people and the good of a king that I think we'll meet one day in eternity because these men did not say God has put me in this place 
I can't sacrifice my influence for good here. If I lose my life, how will I do God's work? If I don't bow right now, what could happen to me? God doesn't want that. They said, what does God want for his name to be glorified and honored in this place? With tears, with suffering, with all those things, that's how we face it. Really don't have much else to say about that. It's just that I encourage you. We do not place our faith. We do not focus our faith on any particular outcome. We focus our faith on the living, present, powerful, all-loving God who knows us better than we know ourselves. ourselves. We trust that if the outcome is not what we desired, as we submit ourselves to God, that he has something much greater in store. Let's pray, and I'll ask the, the musicians to come back up. Lord God, just as we sang in that, that hymn, Blessed be your name, whether we're found in a place of suffering or, or in a, uh, a place of plenty, Lord, just as you said, as, as you moved Horatio Spafford to write it, that, Lord, the greatest things are things that we in our short-sightedness can't see. My sin, oh, the joy, the glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Lord God, I pray that as we abide in you, you would help us, as J.J. said, to see how much you, we are abiding in you. You are feeding us. You are living within us. You are surrounding us. And in all things, by your will, you have the best in store. In your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.